0: Make yourself at home. That's something our friends uh, Carrie and John would regularly tell us as we went over to their house. Uh, John was my boss and senior pastor at a church that I worked at. And I don't know how many times we went over to their house, uh, but it was a lot. And for some reason, even though we had known them for quite a number of years, it took a long time for me to actually get to a place where I had the comfort to actually make myself at home. Uh, so, for example, I'd ask to get a drink, right? I would still ask to get something to eat. And Carrie, what she would do is she would so kindly encourage and remind me. She said, you know, you don't have to ask. You just feel free and get whatever you want. You know, whatever's mine, we're going to go ahead and share it with you. And finally, when uh, one day when we were hanging out at their house, uh, without even thinking about it, I just walked up over to the refrigerator, got myself a drink, grabbed a piece of fruit, and started munching on it without having to ask her. I just did it. And you know how Carrie responded? She encouraged me again. She said she actually took notes. She said, hey, I'm so glad that you're actually making yourself at home and you're getting whatever it is you want out of the refrigerator, right? So I want to share with you whatever is ours. Well, in today's passage, God reminds us to make ourselves at home in his kingdom. In other words, we are reminded of the blessings of being in a right relationship with God, being those who submit to and love God, being those who worship Jesus Christ. And the benefits that we look at, all the benefits that we look at this week and then also two weeks to come, uh, which will be our next sermon in the book of Romans as Oscar is going to preach next week, um, all of these benefits flow out of right standing with God. They flow from a right relationship with our very Creator and Lord So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. If you're using one of the black Bibles there in front of you, you can be found on page 942. Romans, chapter 5, and we are in verses 1 to 11, uh, where we consider blessings of being in right relationship with God. The blessings of being in right relationship with God. That's kind of like the main theme that we're going to look at. And if you're taking notes, and you're already there on page 942, If you're taking notes, the three blessings we look at this week are, number one, peace with the king, right? We're talking about life in the kingdom here. We have number one, peace with the king, number two, access to the king, and then number three, hope in the return of the king. So number one, you can think of peace. Number two, think of access. Number three, think of hope. So with our passage today, we are entering into a a new section of the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman Christians here. And as we go through the book of Romans, you know, I hope that you are reading the passage that's going to come up next. So if you look in the back of your bulletin, you'll see, for example, uh, the next passage that's going to be preached on. Where's my bulletin amongst all of my bulletins? Here it is. Okay, so there we have it. No, I'm looking at the wrong bulletin. Somebody tell us what the next passage that's going to be preached on. Philippians 2. Uh, and then we have the verses 12 to 18. So right, as we're going through the sermons, I hope that you guys are reading the Bible in preparation for the service next week. So just go ahead and commit yourself to reading that every single day. You can read it with uh, friends as you guys hang out. You can discuss uh, the issues and the things that pop out in that text. Uh, go ahead and do that with the book of Romans. And um, I'm going to give you an outline for the book of Romans. So as you are reading it, as we continue through the book of Romans, you have this outline right next to you. And that'll be helpful as you digest the book and meditate on it. So here's, here's uh, one outline by a, a man named D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, or two men there. Um, number one, the gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. The gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. So they're kind of underscore righteousness of God by faith. That's basically Romans chapter 1 to 4. Romans chapters 1 to 4. The gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. He then moves in... In the start of Romans chapter 5, to the gospel as the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. This is chapters 5 to 8. That's where we are today. The gospel as the power of God for salvation. And then you got Romans chapters 9 through 11, the gospel and Israel. So who is Israel? What does that have to do with us today? The gospel and Israel. And then fourthly, the gospel and the transformation of life the gospel and transformation of life. This is chapters 12 to 15, verse 13. Then, of course, you got the conclusion there uh, as he gives his salutations at the very end. So the whole entire letter is centered around the gospel. That's what we've seen. If you want a one-word summary of the book of Romans, it's the word uh, gospel. So again, there, the summary of the outline is the gospel as a righteousness of God by faith, the gospel as the power of God for salvation, the gospel in Israel and the gospel and transformation of all life. Now, the first four chapters, Paul, the apostle, as he was inspired by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, he reminds readers that sinners can actually be saved, that they can be justified, that they can be righteous, even though they are incredibly unrighteous. And how is it that they can be saved? They are saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are declared righteous in the sight of a righteous God by faith in Jesus Christ, in the gospel. That is the good news. But as we get to Romans chapter 5, we see here that we start getting into the implications. This is all the therefore here, Romans 5 to 8, the therefore of the gospel. Look there at 5.1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he goes on. So this right here, he's just really opening the door to the implications, getting us to walk into the kingdom of God now that we have been declared just or righteous in the sight of God. In these chapters, we see how the gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? Since the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Christians can therefore be confident. So If you want to write there underneath that large outline, chapters 5 to 8, they're dealing really with confidence before god confidence in their faith in the gospel confident of all the blessings and the benefits of christ and his cross work we sung an amazing grace that god promises good to us here we're sort of cracking the door open and getting the opportunity to examine all of the good that god promises for his people and then for the next few chapters of course we get to walk around continue walking around in the kingdom of god go ahead and look there at uh 512. i don't know if you if you uh your bible has headings but my bible has headings that were inserted after the scripture was written it's helpful i find them helpful you see their death in adam life in christ It's talking really about union with this jesus if jesus is my head and i submit to him and love him well what are the benefits that flow from being in union with jesus christ and then in chapter six dead to sin and alive to god again union with god what does that have to do with our struggle with sin Is sin gonna rule us finally at the end of the day? Well, in, uh, verse 15 there, he gets to being a slave to righteousness, not a slave to sin. That's a benefit. Slave does not have the, uh, sin does not have the final say. Nor does the law there in chapter 7 in the beginning. Release from the law. The law doesn't have the final say either. And then we get to life in the spirit. What does it look like for us to live in the spirit of Christ? And what does it look like for us to hope in future glory? Our passage, actually, as it opens this section, it brings up a lot of these topics that he then's going to cycle back to later on in the coming chapters there. Uh, but that's something to keep aware of as we read through the section. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5. But actually, for today, I'm actually going to focus on verses 1 to 4. Just 1 to 4. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1 of chapter 5. <clears throat> Therefore... Again, we're going to look at those three benefits of peace, access, and hope. We're going to move quickly through the first two and then land on the third. And clearly, as we look at the passage here, uh, he himself, Paul himself, as he's writing this letter, camps more on the last one, which is hope. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at the first blessing of being in the kingdom of God. It says there that we have peace with God. This is the very first blessing in our section today that Paul wants us, that God himself wants us to be mindful of. As we are declared righteous, we enter into his kingdom. He wants us to be confident of the fact that we have peace with the king that we once rebelled against. For Christians to hear the word peace, you know, many of us think of peace, the peace of God. You know, that that is found in Philippians chapter 4, for example. It speaks of the peace of God which transcends everything. The peace of God that guides our hearts in times of anxiety. This here is not that peace. That is a good piece, a very important piece, but this is a more fundamental piece. This is a, a peace between sinner and the holy, the unrighteous and the righteous. It says there, the peace with God, not the peace of God, it's a peace with God. Now, if you're visiting with us today and maybe you are exploring Christianity, you might think like, you know, gosh, why do I even need the peace with God? What I'm after is the peace of God. I need tranquility. I need serenity now. But no, here he says that what we need actually is peace with God. It's because the Bible actually says that the one who does not submit to and love Jesus Christ is actually hostile to God. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Here in this section, you know, he's talking about the Christian life, he's talking about life in the kingdom of God, and he has this distinction between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. And those who live according to the flesh, they are those who reject Jesus. And he says there, for the mind that is set on the flesh, these are non-Christians, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's very clear right there that this man, this Christian man, this, Christi- sorry, this non-Christian man, this non-Christian woman, does not submit to God's law? Of course not, because they don't care about God's law. Indeed, it cannot. They cannot. And then uh, Colossians 121, you don't have to turn there now, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, and you, he's talking about the, the, the folks who were formerly non-Christians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, it goes on to say. They were hostile in mind, it says. It just affirms what Paul's writing here in Romans chapter 8. Earlier chapters of Romans speaks of what sinful man has done. Uh, we don't have to go to later chapters. We've already looked at what sinful man has done. Go ahead and turn over to 118. <clears throat> 118 of the book of Romans. It says that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, what do they do? Why are they hostile to God? It says that they, they do they do these certain things, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his in, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Look there, at twenty-one. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they make this great exchange, the glory of God for the glory of man. They worship man or the stuff of the world, their very own selves. It's interesting that sinful man, being hostile against God, stands condemned before God. So there you have man's enmity. They are against God. But it's not only that. The Bible says that God's face is also against sinners. So you read there in 118, you can look there that the wrath of God and all of his righteousness and all of his justice and all of his holiness stands against ungodliness. The unrighteousness of men. That is why peace with God is necessary, right? I mean, you could, tranquility is good. The calmness that comes from the peace of God is good in difficult circumstances. But here, what is primary in the book of Romans and in scripture is that we need peace with God because we stand at enmity with Him and His face is actually in wrath against us. Now again, if you're visiting as a non-Christian, I'm sure you know what it is like to want peace between you and somebody else, right? You know what it is like to be in the wrong and to have somebody angry against you. And of course, the closer the person is to your inner circle, the more that stuff should bother you. Should is the key word, right? But you guys probably understand what I'm talking about. The more the person is closer to your inner circles, <clears throat> the more this hostility or enmity or even something as bland as a misunderstanding, that, you know, the more important this reconciliation is. Maybe some of you guys, even right now, maybe you got in a fight with your spouse, or your roommate, and now you guys need some sort of reconciliation, even as we, uh, even as you sit and listen to the sermon. See, the problem with sinners is that we have relegated God, the Almighty, the Creator, the Lord, to the farthest category out there. Equivalent to maybe the guy that I cut off and who was angry at me on the street. We don't really care, unfortunately. We've relegated God to the outer circle, if he is even in our uh circle of universe, a relationship at all. Well, the Bible says that your relationship with God, actually, despite how one might feel at any given moment, is the most important relationship you have because he is your maker. You are dependent upon him. He's the one who created you. We oftentimes tend to think that maybe our parents, you know, that's the most important relationship, but it's not because even they are dependent on the independent one, that is God himself. And as God is king, he now calls and commands everybody to get right with him and to be at one with him again. And in his, in his kindness and his love, he actually pursues this at-oneness with sinners who have rebelled against him. This is the good news of the gospel. So he delays in bringing the full punishment That those who are treasonous, that those who deserve this, which is all of us, because all of us have sinned. is what Paul says in in the book of Romans. He delays this full punishment that we deserve in order to provide time that sinners might be right with him. Thus, you have the purpose of the gospel. And Paul is so excited here. Turn to one sixteen. He says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Right? Keep in mind, he's trying to take this gospel to Spain where it hasn't been preached yet. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith it's a big deal for unrighteous sinners and Paul knows it as an unrighteous sinner himself apart from God Jesus Christ in his loving kindness he sends his eternal son to take on flesh he lives the pur- the the, the he fulfills the law that God had upon us, the righteous requirements that he had upon us are fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his life. He dies on the cross bearing the sin and the wrath that we deserve for that sin so that everybody who would turn and repent and believe on him would be saved, that they would be made right with the king that we ourselves have rebelled. So Jesus Christ is our sacrifice of atonement. He is our, to use a big theological word, that is important to know. He is our propitiation. His face was once in wrath against sinners, but because of his own loving kindness, he sends Jesus, and the wrath is now placed on Christ. His face then is towards those who repent and believe with joy, with favor, like a father is with his son. This is the atonement. And the very English word there speaks of this reconciliation that is required at one mint. He's bringing sinners unrighteous folks at one with His righteous God. And this is actually where Paul is going in Romans chapter 5. You see there in verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Keep in mind, again, if you're visiting with us and exploring Christianity, this peace with God is not a ceasefire. I think sometimes we can kind of think of this peace with God, peace with the king who's on the throne and we are his rebels as if this peace is somehow like just like a a mere ceasefire. For a time, God will delay his wrath against those he loves and those he saves. Right. And maybe you never really know what's going to happen when wartime will start again. That is not peace with God. Peace with God is not achieved by a law or a technicality, but because God loves sinners enough to receive their punishment upon himself joyfully as the gospel scripture says that Jesus Christ joyfully went to the cross. And thank God that in our passage here, Paul wants us to know, look there, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to be mindful that we as sinners, even though we had our guns aimed at God, He has pacified us, and now we can enjoy life in His kingdom absolute, absolutely free. We can discuss with others and say, I have peace with the king now. Imagine that, being rebels, lay down your arms, and then saying to other sinners, other rebels, saying, I now have peace with him, and I don't have to be judged for my sin. In fact, I am forgiven of my sin, and I stand right before our God. What a blessing it is to have peace with God. That's our first blessing, there, peace with God. Second blessing, we have access to God's securing grace. We have access to God's securing grace. Look there verse 2. It says through him, this is our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through him we have also obtained there he's there possessing it access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So weird way to speak about the Christian life there, access to the very thing in which we already have He speaks about it as if, you know, we are to gain the thing that's already gained. This word access here is a unique word. It speaks of, in a couple different contexts, you could use it to speak of something like an introduction to the great king. And that great king has resources and he wants to bestow it upon all sorts of people, right? That's the great king. So this access is like having this introduction where therefore we now can call him father, Not only is it in that relational kingly aspect, this word access also speaks of going into the most holy places where we have fellowship with God. So you have that king aspect, the the introduction to a relationship, and then you have this entrance before the holy. And both imply a boldness, right? A confidence in going to Jesus Christ. The aspect of gaining something already gained is actually the point. Keep in mind in this passage, God is helping us make ourselves at home in his kingdom. We as sinners have already been declared righteous by God. We have already laid down our arms by the grace of God. And God's face is now towards us, not in wrath, but in love. We've been adopted into his family. That's the grace of God in which we stand. All those things have already happened. Justification, right standing, reconciliation. And if that is the grace in which we stand, our passage tells us that we have ongoing access to it. Having already been pardoned by him, welcomed by him through Jesus Christ, God wants us to roam, roam all over his kingdom and benefit from all that he has, all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. In terms of application, how important is it for God's children to be reminded of access to the King? How how important is it for Christians to be reminded of God's ever, his eternal availability, his ever-present securing and saving grace through Jesus Christ? Sometimes when we think about Father, we think about maybe human fathers and maybe our human fathers, certainly our human fathers have always wronged us or mothers, parents, authorities. And we think perhaps they are not always, in fact, they are not always accessible. They are not always available, though even in their best intentions they might be. But here it says that God, we are reminded that God is always available, always accessible. It's important to be reminded of this, as we Christians are always, or oftentimes forgetful, aren't we? Forgetful of the fact that we have an ongoing access to His grace. I mean, just think about how many times you, Christian, have relied on your own self to battle sin. We were enslaved to sin. And then God justifies us, so we enter into his kingdom, but then somehow we end up relying on our own efforts to battle against sin. Or we think we maintain our standing in God's house, not according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ, but through perfectly obeying and meeting the requirements of the law, as if that were even possible. That is, forgetting that God's grace not only gets us into the door of God's salvation, but actually secures us all the way until the end. So you have the idea of God preserving us all the way until the end, all by his grace. But not only are we forgetful, sometimes we are doubtful. So how many of you guys think you don't have, or maybe you even right now, you might be struggling with some sort of sin, some sort of sin that you just are looking forward to shaking and it seems to be dragging you down. And maybe you even right now insist that you don't have access to God. Maybe in self-pity, you look at yourself and think, look at me. Feeling the guilt and shame, think, you should not have died for me. This is where the reminder uplifts us. Just as God's grace saves, so God's grace secures us, even after having stumbled, if we repent in an ongoing way, if we cast ourselves at God's feet in an ongoing way. This is grace that picks us up. This is grace that encourages us to walk all the more closely to Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we possess these things. We have peace with God the King through our Lord Jesus Christ, even though we were rebels. Through this Jesus Christ and the grace displayed in his life and his crucifixion and his resurrection, we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand. continual access to the forgetful and to even the doubtful. And what comes from this peace, which is our first blessing, what comes uh, from this access to grace, which is a second blessing, it is thirdly an abiding hope, the third blessing, an abiding hope. Uh, You can just write there the longer one. We rejoice in the hope in the glory of God. That's what it says there. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And of course, this is kind of building up steam here, or this is uh, moving faster and faster. Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So this word rejoice here actually is boasting. We boast in hope of the glory of God. This is an interesting thing here, because actually he's gonna move to, he speaks very clearly of this hope. That isn't something just, that isn't uh, something to be hoped in as if it's a possibility. No, this is something that is absolutely secured already. This is a certainty here, certainty here. But this hope here is talking about something that's gonna come in the future. It's interesting. He already talked about how we enter into the kingdom, where we now have peace with the king, we have access to the king's grace, and now he's talking about the hope that's going to come, that is future, the glory of God. That's, that's a, that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, theologians call this the already not yet. Okay. So if you're going to go and evangelize to somebody, I, I wouldn't really encourage you guys to talk about the, use the language of, Hey, we're living in the already not yet. Um, that might be kind of strange to the person who's listening to you. But what he's talking about here is the fact that we already have salvation. But on the one hand, our salvation isn't yet complete. Without doubt, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. But there's other stuff, right? No doubt we have been set apart. We have been sanctified. But God sanctifies us presently. And in the future, our sanctification will be complete in heaven. Um, We are being transformed into glory, into one degree of glory to another. But yet our glorification isn't until the end when we're raised from the dead, the Bible says. So salvation is already, we possess it right now, but at the same time, we are being saved. That's why you get this language of, okay, we have been justified, but we hope in something that is future, that is the glory of God. And this is legit boasting. And previously he said, look, don't follow them, the Jewish moralists who boast in the law. They boasted in God, but really they trusted in themselves. So here he's offering the alternative. We boast in the hope, Of the glory of God, this glory, this hope of the glory of God is to hope in the final day when all of God's promises break in into the now. And all of God's end times promises comes to fruition. Here Paul has, he has his eye on the end times or the last things or as theologians call it, the eschaton eschatology, if you've heard of this, is really just the study of the last things, the end times. It's a time when Christ the King returns to the throne and makes His reign known in full. That time will be a great time of great glory, and for different reasons. First, because God is glorified, right? Christ receives the praise. He is on the throne in the book of Revelation, and everybody is around Him singing His praises. All things at that time will be known to be shown to be under subjection to him satan and sin Right? satan and sin have already been defeated now but then when he when he comes he throws away the key for good christ is praised he receives the glory for fulfilling his plan of salvation but second in god's plan did you know that his people also share in his glory his people also share in his glory God's people, in the end, when Christ returns, are also glorified. Romans chapter 8 speaks of the day when God's salvation plan is fulfilled and we are glorified. We will be free from sin. We will be like Christ when we see Christ face to face. This is fitting for those who might feel the sting of sin from their previous lives, isn't it? And even their sting from sin that you guys wrestle with now as Christians. We want to be free from this body of death. We want to lay hold of this future glorification in Jesus Christ when he comes. That's the hope of glory also, to be free from sin, raised from the dead, glorified just like Jesus was. But sharing in his glory also involves sharing in his vindication. And that's actually where I think Paul's going to go with this. It's sharing in Christ's vindication. Just as God through Christ proves himself right and blameless in the eyes of the world, so he also proves that his people are right in the eyes of the world. I think Paul camps out on this particular concept. I say that because the passage, if you read there, it moves from hope in the glory of God to suffering to back to hope. You look there in verse 3. Well, let's start in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the glory of God with that hope. Verse 3, not only that, though, Christians, but we rejoice or boast in our sufferings. So he goes from hope to suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it will not disappoint us, the hope in the glory of God, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're going to camp out on the Spirit given to us. We're going to camp out on the love of God being poured into our hearts um, and why hope doesn't disappoint. But for now, uh, we're looking at the hope in the glory of God, and now we're looking at this vindication here. The Greek word for suffering here refers to afflictions, particularly the afflictions or the sufferings that we go through on behalf of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. So think of persecution, think of opposition. It's great that regularly here at church, we pray for the persecuted church. I don't know if you guys have friends from Eritrea. You prob- some of you guys might. Uh, we have friends from Eritrea. And uh, so it's great that we can be praying for the church there as they are bearing up under suffering and affliction. Right, That's the suffering and affliction that they're going through. The word here stands for, it, 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 it has this connotation of being pressed down being pressed down and we know that paul's going to return once again in romans chapter 8 to suffering as nothing will separate us from the love of god not even death this is so significant to the followers of jesus christ as he said that we would experience hardships on account of his name here presently some of you guys know what this is like to experience hardships for the name of jesus christ people make fun of you perhaps People might treat you differently at work, maybe not even give you business, or maybe your boss doesn't give you clients on account of Jesus Christ. I know some of you guys, your testimony is that your boss has asked you in the past to do some sort of shady thing, but yet, for the sake of the gospel, you actually stand your ground and do what Christ wants as opposed to what your boss wants. And so you know the casualties that come from that. You might be written off. You might even be facing physical hostility for your faith. That's what Paul's situation was. That's what the situation was for the Roman Christians, actually. You guys know that in the years leading up to Paul writing this letter, I think that Paul wrote this letter in the mid-50s AD, the years leading up to Paul writing this letter, the Christian Jews and all Jews in Rome were actually kicked out of Rome. Can you imagine, right, somebody, I mean the sheriff's department or whoever, comes down and says, okay, all of you guys who live in Hacienda Heights or Roland Heights or wherever you're from, you need to leave now for suspicion. Uh, you know, maybe the government somehow feels threatened uh, threatened by you because you follow the king, that is King Jesus. But really what you want is people to worship Jesus. You want people to be saved and to repent of their sin. So that's what's going on there. The, the emperor feels threatened to kick all of the Jews out, the Jewish Christians. Even though the Jews trickled back into Rome after the emperor died, the persecution would actually worsen. You can think of the persecution under Nero 10 years later in the mid-60s. You can think of Trajan in the second century who was known for uh, having the Christians thrown to lions. You know, this expulsion here, this persecution is actually referred to in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. You don't have to turn there right now. Where the emperor Claudius kicks out all the Jews and Paul is actually in Corinth and he meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. You guys know them? And Priscilla and Aquila are actually mentioned in the book of Romans. So after they're kicked out, Paul writes this letter at some point in time. And because Paul's writing this letter to the Romans with Priscilla and Aquila mentioned, he says, hey, greet them means that they've already trickled back, right? So we're thinking that this is after the emperor had died in the middle of uh, the 50s A.D. here. But anyways, my point is, is that they're going through affliction. And as they are going through affliction, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes time to guide Christians in helping them think about how they experience suffering even though they live with Christ on the throne as they await Christ's return. They still suffer. He says there in verse 3 that Christians here, they boast in their suffering because of their hope in the glory of God and because it is refined. It's interesting. You guys boast in your suffering? As you live in the kingdom of God, right? He wants you to be confident, even confident in suffering. Confident when people oppress you for the name of Jesus who justified you, who died for you. He wants us to boast in life under the king. Verse 3 gives us this process. You look there, we rejoice, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That is the hope of the glory of God. I'm sure you guys might pause right there and think like, man, these truths are kind of hard to grasp in the middle of suffering. Before we get to the individual words here, it's important to see once again that he ends up talking about hope So whatever these words mean, whatever God's processes are for our suffering in this life, he wants us ultimately to grow in hope. So that you got to see that there. He wants you to get your heart to move towards hope. He wants our hope refined, honed, strengthened. Think of a determined athlete. You know, some of you guys are athletes. Uh, Some of us are posers, but maybe you know what it's like to dabble. Think of the the determined athlete who trains and trains who pushes himself to attain the prize, the athlete who practices and practices with his eyes fixed on the hope of victory. The same thing goes for work, even if you're not an athlete. Let's say you want to build your business, as I know some of you guys do, right? You're going to put in the work. Think about those of you who might be striving to attain another degree. Let's say a PhD. You want to be a doctor of something and so on, right? You choose to subject yourself under a load for the payout, for the gain, for the prize. And when you advance under the load, your hopes get stronger, don't they? It's, you're designed to kind of look back and think like, man, that was tough, but I'm through it. And your hopes get stronger. The prize is that much closer. Your hopes grow, actually. They're strengthened, they're honed, they're more fixed, they're more focused. Well, friends, that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to look at, he wants the suffering Christians to say, hold on one second. Let's look at the process in order that our hope might grow. He says there we rejoice in our sufferings, that is our afflictions for the faith, because, and, and by the way, when, when we put sufferings here, just go ahead and lump in all sorts of suffering, right? All sorts of suffering, because while we might not suffer from man's sin, as in persecution, we still suffer from the effects of sin, right? We all suffer from breaking down bodies, etc. cetera. We know what it's like to live in this sinful world in general, so you can um, include other sufferings in general. He says that we rejoice in our sufferings why? Because we know we are fully aware that this pressure of being pushed down by various circumstances it produces endurance. Right? Endurance is just the ability to bear up under the weight of affliction. This creates perseverance and what is what does this endurance produce as their character? That is tested character. This godliness, the fruit of the spirit. And what does this character produce? It produces hope. Hope once again, in the arrival of the king and all the blessings of salvation, particularly vindication in this context. According to Romans chapter 5, and here's the first point of application for this uh, hope here. Suffering helps us learn to live by faith. If you're wondering, what's the purpose of suffering here as I claim king, that king? If I submit myself to that king, I have peace with him, I have access to this grace. But what's the point of suffering? Suffering here helps us learn to live by faith. So when you Christian, when you have suffered, don't you say and don't you pray in the middle of the suffering? Christ, will you get me through this? And then maybe you even say, Christ will get me through this because you know the word of God. Maybe then you go on to say, as you're feeling more uh, strengthened by the spirit of Christ, Christ is getting me through this, no matter how difficult it is. And then on the back end of it, you look back and you say, Christ He did get me through this. This is done. It is over. It is finished, at least that particular thing. The experience of hardship cultivates. It strengthens one's faith. So just think about a time when you suffered for the faith or suffered in general, and Christ got you through it. I remember remember, uh, being as young as junior high school. I don't even know if I was a Christian then, uh, suffering for the name of Jesus. Uh, even though I'm not quite sure if I was a Christian there. You know, I had, uh, my closest friend was a Muslim, uh, one of them, and the other one was a Buddhist. And, uh, you know, it's just, there's the three of us, right? A Christian, a Muslim, and a Buddhist walk into a bar. You just think of all the different jokes, you know. Uh, but it's very, it was a, it, you know, the, all the immigrants hung out together. And so uh, these were my friends. And I can remember being mocked for believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that is the God-man at 13 years old. And I have to be honest, in the moment, it was not easy standing up for the faith, standing up for what, uh, the Bible taught, which at the very least I had a head knowledge of it. But you know what? After that, I, I, I kind of looked back and thought, hey, you know what? That wasn't too bad. Uh, you know, some, they did treat me a little bit different from then on, but hey, you know, I'm, I'm still alive. Uh, so Christ got me through that. And then in high school, those same friends, man, they would make fun of me mercilessly, relentlessly. I remember one time writing the word God on my hand just because um, I wanted to think about God, that he was with me, right, that I was in his presence. So I wrote the word God on my hand. Um, why I wasn't hiding the word of God in my own heart as a way to remember God, I don't know. But I, anyways, I did that. And they mercilessly made fun of me. Not only that, though, but they spread it around. Hey, look at them. Did you see what he did? He speaks to their Muslim friends and their Buddhist friends and their Catholic friends. And they were regularly making fun of me. But you know what? Christ got me through that one. So regular regular sort of mockery prepared me for what was to come. And then I remember one time when I was around 20 years old, I was sharing the gospel with my friend Tiny. He was so ticked off, so angry at God that he pulled out his gun pointed it at my head, and said, if you don't, he's listed off a string of profanity, if you don't shut up I'm talking about God, I will shoot you. And this is the kind of guy who had just shot his VCR in his home because he was ticked off at the VCR. Uh, you know, So he definitely was not fearful to pull a trigger. right? But hey, I look back, and God got me through that one, so it wasn't too bad. Um, and all my friends, in the meantime, knew that I was a Christian, that I stood for Christ, and that I loved them which is why at the end of the day, I don't think he uh, killed me. Um, But some of you guys are exercising your faith in Christ. You evangelize your family for Christ's name, and they mock you. You exercise your faith in Jesus that produces a godly morality, and your boss, uh, you know, he shuns you. But by God's grace, God got you through it. You see how this is supposed to work? You look back, oftentimes requiring the help of others, we look back and we are encouraged to see Christ working in us. Christ walking with us. We suffered for Christ. Christ preserved us. And the experience helped to strengthen your faith in him. He helps to strengthen your faith in him, your reliance upon him, your patience, your kindness, your ability to evangelize in various circumstances, and your godliness grows. Right? Those experiences... That endurance puts some steel in the backbone of your faith, doesn't it? And therefore, it's just kind of normal. And so when a situation arises similar to what you've been through, or maybe even more difficult, you face it already having faced adversity, right? You see how it's supposed to work? Um, You guys know that I uh, watch YouTube videos quite regularly looking for sermon uh, application here. I saw this one about Michael Jordan. And uh, this was about the mindset of Michael Jordan, how he chose to endure adversity in order that he would be ready for anything, right? And, uh, you know, he's known for hitting these buzzer beaters at the very last second. He wins the game. He wins the finals. He has all of his championships. And the interviewer asks him, what prepared you for that moment, your very last shot on the Chicago Bulls or your very last shot that, that sealed the deal for that finals? And he, he says, like, I've done it a thousand times. I've done it a thousand times. For him, as it came to the baller life, being ready to do whatever it took, he showed up to every single practice as if it were a game. And so when it came to the real thing, he was ready. He'd done it a thousand times. Every practice he treated it as if he really needed to put in work so that he would be able to excel. And his coach did too. His coach knew his potential. So what would happen in the, in the practices, right, when they're scrimmaging? Um, he would have them on the weaker team. One team would be up like five to one. And then in the middle of the game he said okay you Jordan go over to the losing team. Um or sorry he was on the winning team their team would excel and then he transfer the coach would transfer him to the losing team. And they would be down 5 to 1. And then sure enough, you know, he would go on and win. That's adversity. The coach knew if I put him in adversity, I'm preparing him for this particular day, these particular moments when he would really need to show up given everything, bringing everything that he had brought in his training, to some particular moment. Same with Michael Phelps, his coach, or whoever, uh, would show up late, take him to take him to meet late on purpose. Uh, he would take him on various detours, just so his mind would kind of get messed up, but he would be used to it, so that he would be able to endure pressure. Friends, it's the same with the Christian faith, the same type of thing, the same sort of process that's supposed to work. You face various circumstances, having already weathered previous circumstances. You face those circumstances with greater boldness, greater wisdom, greater preparedness, greater determination, a greater hope in Christ and a knowledge that all would be good with him. And so we say, just as God delivered me from that, so he's going to deliver me from that from, from right now, even if I die. This is how Paul the Apostle can go on and say some seemingly, seemingly crazy things like in Philippians when he's in jail, for example, he says, I'm confident that my persecution will turn out for my deliverance. Right? If your goal is no jail, then nothing like that will turn out for your deliverance. But he's like, hey, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Another thing, Philippians 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He also says, I don't know what's going to come of me. I don't know what I should choose. Should I choose death or should I choose uh, life? Everything, regardless, is about Jesus Christ. Because of his afflictions already experienced, his faith was indeed stronger. Hope in the glory to be revealed in Christ was focused. His trust was precise. We have another example in 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul looks back at his suffering and he teaches readers about what he learned and how his trust and hope grew in the midst of suffering. And of course, we too ought to learn from it, right? Paul says that in his sufferings, he and his companions were, quote, Burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Suffering, affliction for the gospel. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, it says there, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But right he already got through that. He's already passed that. But what does he say about that? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And of course, He knows He's going to die. He's talking about after death. I wonder if we show up to the trials that we might experience, to the afflictions we have, the suffering that we go through, ready to put into work, ready to put in work, making our calling and election sure, working out our salvation with God's power that works in us. I wonder if we show up to the life, to the practice of life, everyday stuff of life, everyday sufferings of life, willing to put in work. Are we ready to be molded by our God so our faith might fly to His glory? So that we might be faithful Christians who love God in the kingdom where he reigns and rules so that we would be on any given moment ready to tell rebels who are at enmity with God, you can have peace with God too if you would turn from your sins and believe, even if they afflict us. If God is determined that we live by faith, I wonder if you are determined to do the same. Right? If we were open to this and God's plan We would be open to embracing the purpose of suffering. Now, of course, suffering can be hard. And if you are like me, you know suffering can be hard because uh, it oftentimes reveals what we cling to more than God. It oftentimes reveals that I cherish earthly things more than I cherish God himself and all of the blessings that come from life under his rule. And the purpose, of course, of exposing our hearts is so that we would confess our sin, so that we might continually turn back to the hope worth glorying in, worth banking our lives on, that is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. In suffering, there is not only individual application here, there is in others focused application as well, right? So if you're looking at this process, we might think like, okay, so he wants our faith to fly, but if that's all you think, then I don't know if we completely Understand the point of Romans and really the point of the gospel, right? So if he wants our faith to fly not only individually towards him, but he wants our faith to fly to the nations. Remember that. Always remember that when you're reading through the book of Romans, right? He wants our faith to fly to the ends of the earth. That's why he's writing. That's why he's going to call them in Romans chapter 10. He's going to remind them how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to the nations. So that the nations too would rejoice in God's plan. salvation would be fulfilled second point of application here under this third point of hope not only does god help us live by faith he intends that our refined hope would help others live by faith our faith is to fly so that others would live by faith take paul for example god intended him to live by faith to hope in the face of suffering but, of course, this wasn't only for his sake. It was for the Roman Christians' sake, too. I mean, just think about how in God's providence, he writes to them already having suffered and the Roman Christians having already suffered. But the suffering's just going to get worse. The Christians are going to be fed the lions. And the Christians now, if you guys are aware of what's going on, are being persecuted all over the world, clinging to these types of truths that we, in fact, can have a hope in the middle of suffering. And other Christians, too, can have the same. He he writes this stuff for us as well. In suffering, he learned endurance, and his character was refined. God gave him the grace to continue hoping in Jesus Christ. Where would we be, right, without the example of Paul, without the example of all of the apostles, and without the example of all of the martyrs, including the Roman Christians who suffered for their faith? So he has, Paul himself has this mindset, that I'm not going to let my suffering go in vain, but it's going to go to the nations. Christian, have you ever considered that your suffering, don't, don't only think about affliction here for uh, the faith, think now just broader category. Have you ever thought that your affliction and suffering is ju- not just meant for your endurance, for your own hope in the gospel, but the birth of hope in, the, in another? How about the revival of hope in another? or the survival of hope in another. Friends, Paul wants us thinking like this, the glory of God to the ends of the earth. He doesn't just want us thinking, it's all about me and the glory of God that I can experience before God. He's thinking about the glory of God in every, for everybody, for every rebel that they might know salvation in Jesus Christ and right standing under the king. This is very nations focused. So in Romans chapter one, he's all about bringing about the obedience of faith to the nations. Thus, Romans 10, once again, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Paul is so willing to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Not so that he might know peace with God alone, but so that he might bring as many as possible to the Prince of Peace, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's process, the process of God equipping you to be a faithful citizen of his kingdom pointing everybody to the king our lord and savior jesus christ i wonder if your suffering is all about you i know it sounds funny but you look at jesus right Jesus' suffering was for everybody who would repent and believe paul's suffering for the gospel was not just his own suffering it was suffering for everybody now even the stuff of his health when he prays you know that the thorn would be removed he says even there what an example that God's grace would be proven sufficient, that his power would be made perfect in weakness, a display for everybody, for us to follow. So, Christian, in the midst of your suffering, ask yourself, how does Christ want to prove himself to be my hope individually? It's good, it's good that there is an individual component. So think that, how does God want to prove himself to be my hope individually? So for example, do you long for vindication, right? That's the context. Are you suffering well, friends, hope in the glory of God when, as he will vindicate his own name, so he vindicates his people's name. Right? He'll go on to say in the book of Romans that we don't have to take revenge, actually, here on this earth, but we can entrust ourselves to God because he will make all things right. That's 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 very individual. and That's good. How about this one? Are you crushed by the weight of sin and guilt? How does Christ want to prove himself to be your hope? Well, God has already justified you in Jesus Christ. Sin will not ultimately rule you, but you are in Christ and you have the spirit of Christ. And he's going to help you live according to his ways. That's an individual thing. Are you discouraged by this body of death, right? Um, I'm experiencing, we all experience this body of death. And even for me, 2017 has been incredibly difficult. My body has been failing me in all sorts of different ways, right? And I want to be done with this body, not only because I sin, but also... Uh, because it just fails me. Well, praise God that in this sinful world, we have another hope where God is going to raise us from the dead and we have final glorification. But don't just stop there in the individual realm. Consider how your experience can actually help others in the faith. So this, I think, is where our challenge is, right? How do we go beyond the individual and then helping others? Just the path of Jesus, the path of Paul. So, how do you go on and help others? Well, out of your endurance and suffering, you can actually help others in their suffering and in their affliction for the name of Christ. Right? So, I remember one time um, when I was, uh, me and my friend John that I mentioned earlier in the sermon, you know, we were asked to teach a bunch of pastors from a closed country. Um, and that closed country was known for shutting down churches, they were known for imprisoning Christians, they were known for torturing Christians. And so, here, me and John sat, two Western guys in front of a room with folks who had been, at least a couple of them, had been imprisoned and had been tortured for the name of Jesus. And you know why we were there? We were there to teach them about suffering. I've been mocked, right? That's not a big deal. Somebody pointed a gun at me and threatened my life, right? That's not a big deal. These guys have been tortured for the name of Jesus Christ. And as I'm there teaching them from the book of Thessalonians about suffering, they teach me just by the fact that they are faithful that they're there to learn about Christ because they want to go back to their country to teach other people about Jesus Christ. Their suffering, or they are determined to not let their suffering be in vain because I get strengthened as the weaker one there. So out of your own endurance and your own suffering, friends, you realize that you can help other people who endure the same things, who suffer the same things for the name of Jesus Christ. Think about all of your afflictions in this sinful world. If you need freedom from sin, Maybe you're wrestling with the effects of the fall of man and you're discouraged by any number of things. Whatever it is, your experience in suffering as your own hope endured, as you latched on to the glory of God that is to be revealed when Christ returns, you you go through those things in order that other people would be helped to lay hold of your same Christ. Our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope in the glory of God. This is written here that we might be encouraged to know that Christ is preparing you, even in your sufferings, for a life of fruitfulness in the kingdom of Christ, both here and now, but especially in the things that are to come. Now, at first glance, it's a strange thing to rejoice in these things. Strange things to be to be underneath the king and his kingdom, rejoicing in our suffering. But what an amazing thing it is because we can rejoice in, because of the hope of the glory of God. Life in the kingdom of Christ, as Christ wants us to be comfortable or confident, more like, He wants us to be confident in all the blessings, peace with the King. He wants us to be confident going back and having access to the King in all of His grace. And He wants us confident in a hope that He will indeed return and make all things right. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are so determined to make sure that we are comforted in your kingdom, that we are confident in your kingdom. We Thank you, Lord Jesus, that this word here was given us, that we might look back to see what you have done as you have justified us and forgiven us of our sins, and to know that we stand in the right with you. We have continual access to you as you help us, as you comfort us, as you give us peace even in difficult times. And as you sustain us in the midst of suffering, Lord Jesus, we pray that you indeed would be our vision, that we would know that you have made things well between us, the unrighteous, and you, the holy and righteous one. Lord, we pray even as we've read earlier, we pray, Lord, that we would know that you have indeed showed and revealed and poured out your love for us in the gospel. Father, we pray that we would never lose sight of all that you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that we would look at the greatness of the gospel and know so clearly that, that just as you have done that, the greatest thing, so, Lord, you will do all the rest. So, Lord, you will, in fact, deliver us even in the midst of persecution. Lord, we pray that you would well up our hope in the things that are to come. And for the name of Christ, we pray these things to the ends of the earth. Amen.